The following sermon is brought to you by thepreachersvault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. Okay, so Philippians chapter 2, we are just about down toward the end of that. I was thinking on last week that we'd be able to close this chapter out. We didn't quite do that, so we're very near toward the end already. We've been looking at a section, if you want to see it that way, that I've been uh, calling really the idea of Paul's friends. Now, if you go back into chapter 1, somewhere around verse 15, Paul started talking about his fortune. And he wasn't a rich man, not implying that, at least not at the time of writing, he certainly wasn't. But he would find fortune in the fact that he would be called, verse 15, the sons, a part of, the sons of God, and that he would live even himself in the midst of that crooked and perverse nation, also from the same verse. And that he was able to hold forth, verse 16, the word of life. And of course, he's encouraging them to do the same. Then when you get down to around verse 18 or so, 18, basically down through about verse 26, Paul started talking about some of his friends, uh, some of his cohorts, some of his companions, and particularly he was taking mention of two characters, one of which we're very familiar with, and that is Timothy. He referred to him at the beginning of this book as Timotheus. Obviously, we know Timothy, that he would be someone who Paul would spend an awful lot of time with. They would be co-workers. Um, he would be a fellow laborer of his. That's what he would call him on several occasions. He would even call him his own son in the faith. Of course, we know Paul uh, wasn't claiming he has a physical son, obviously, but claiming his as what he called there the son in the faith. And we know that Timothy was a great young man. And I say young as a comparison to Paul. Paul was probably middle to late 60s by this point, if not older. Uh, Timothy was somewhat younger than that. Of course, he would probably be considered middle age even by standards today, and I mean by that Timothy. However, he started talking about in this latter section of this, he first claimed his desire to send Timothy to them, and he said as soon as he knew his state or what his outcome of his imprisonment was going to be, he might very well do that. But he started talking in verse 25 about that man named Epaphroditus. And Epaphroditus, uh, his name means lovely and devoted, and he was certainly that. At least he was the Apostle Paul. It's most likely and seems to be bearing out in this context that Epaphroditus had been hand-selected by the church at Philippi and sent back to check on Paul. And basically what Paul has said about him so far is that even though he, you sent him to check on me, I'm sending him back to check on you. And of course that was just Paul's mindset and his attitude. And you know that out of all the missionary journeys that Paul would take, it was often the case that either he would go back to those places physically whenever possible, and if not, and even on top of that, sometimes he would write letters back to these individuals. And so he wanted them to constantly uh, recognize his concern, his, his care, his compassion, and the fact that he was really, you know, really uh, wanting to be involved in their lives. He wasn't someone who's just going to come in and preach the gospel and run off and say, I hope they make it the best they can. And so... That's kind of a mindset and an attitude that we have, uh, many that are involved in missionary work today. If you'll notice some of the pattern that they seem to hold to, I don't know if they claim, well, I'm doing what Paul did or not, but they'll go into an area, they'll preach the gospel, maybe there'll be those who'll be added to the Lord's church, maybe there'll be congregations of the Lord's church started up in some certain area, and then for years or decades on, uh, they'll at least check back with those brethren, if not go back and assist them more physically, and that's what Paul had constantly done. 
But just to read the verses beginning in verse 25, we're long about verse 27 now, but he said, And yet I suppose it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. He says he's my brother and companion in labor and fellow soldier, but your messenger and he ministered to my wants. And we know that Epaphroditus did not just come to Paul and you know, just simply relay the message of what's going on over here. When he came, he worked. And he worked to an extent that verse 26 begins to reveal in 27. He said, for he, speaking of Epaphroditus, for he longed after you all and was full of heaviness because ye heard that he had been sick. How sick is he, Paul? Verse 27. He said, For indeed he was sick, nigh unto death, but God had mercy on him, not on him only, but also, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. So obviously as it reads here, he comes to minister to Paul. He ends up finding himself sick. It seems by what we read here as well as we're going to see by the time we get down to verse 30, that he pretty much laid his life on the line to the point that maybe his work is what made him sick. Maybe, you know, as, as we understand things today, he might have literally worked himself sick or, like we oftentimes do, not necessarily work ourselves sick, but we work to the point that we uh, don't take care of ourselves as well as we should or we uh, overlook something that's going on because we're so busy. And I've seen that many times. I hadn't necessarily been sick, but I know... Uh, basically all my life, once I get started on something, I won't stop, you know, so no lunch, no supper, no whatever, and I like to eat. I usually eat three times a day, but you'll just keep going. Why? Because you get involved, and you get to working on something, get preoccupied. No, no, exactly what happened to him, but we know he was sick, and we know it was a severe condition. Uh, it was even believed that he was so sick he might die, and Paul says there, if he had died, that would have brought sorrow upon my sorrow, and so Paul knew uh, the love that they have between one another. And so this is kind of the part of this section, and I've kind of divided this out again. He talks about his friends. Down into verse 27, he starts to talk about his feelings. How he felt about this man Epaphroditus, obviously how he feels about them. And then even says right here, verse 28, he said, I sent him therefore, meaning because he was sick, because of his condition, I sent him therefore the more carefully that when, we would, when you see him again, you may rejoice, and that I may be less sorrowful. So when he says he sent him here more carefully, the word there that backs up the two words more carefully, mean the idea, or carry with the idea I sent him with haste. And so Paul basically says, look, you, you, I don't know if he had recovered to a point or to an extent, but Paul said, look, you got to go. You got to go back there with the brethren. You got to attend to them. You got to be there with their needs. Don't worry about me anymore. And he was cautious in doing that, it seems. The next verse will show this as well. Maybe because he thought they might be mad about it. You know, and again, I've seen this back and forth going in this section as well as really through many of Paul's writings when he gets down to those last chapters or last sections where he starts talking about his co workers and what they do and how they labor together. And here there's some finger pointing going on. They're saying, look, you go check on Paul. Paul's saying, no, you go check on them. And then he says, well, you, you minister to him. Paul says, no, you go minister to them. And then Paul says, well, you're sick. You need to go back. And then he wonders, maybe, when he sends him back, if they might say, look, we sent him to, to help you. And if he got sick when he was with you, then he recovered when he was you. He needed to stay with you. He needed to keep on working. 
but nonetheless he sends them back. And then he tells them here in verse 29, there's some interesting wording here. He tells them in verse 29, receive him therefore. So I'm going to send him back, and even though you might not want him back in that capacity, receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness and hold such in reputation. So take him back in, and when you get him back in, you... Coach Stevens needs a way in the back door right there. He's waving, we're waving back. But he says, receive him. That word receive, and I've, I've talked about several different times, the New Testament word for received. Uh, there are several occasions when it's used. There are basically three Greek words that oftentimes back up the English word for received. Now, what do we think about when we think about receiving something? Someone gives it, you take it. And you know, that's just like the UPS man or the mail person going by or whatever. That's just the way that is. You take the package and you receive it to yourself. And if it happens to be yours, you'll receive that with gladness. And you'll pull that in and you say, okay, here's my package. Now, there are mistakes that are made in that. And we see how that works out. Or sometimes we receive a package that's damaged and Back and forth you could go with that, but the idea of receiving something typically means that you receive it and you're glad to get it. The Greek words that back this up, there are three Greek words, there are two of them I often mention, uh, that are basically pronounced something like this. There's a Greek word lambano, and then there's a Greek word dekomai. Now, what is the difference between lambano and dekomai? I've often explained it. Lambano means to snatch. And so sometimes, and we'll use the UPS illustration, sometimes the UPS man pulls up, he walks up to the door, he lays down the package, somebody opens the door, they snatch it up, they run back in the house, maybe they look down and say, oh, wait a minute, that's not my name, that's not my address, but goody-goody for me. And I actually had this happen, it's been, not the goody-goody part, but it's been over 20-something years ago. What is your all grandson or whatever that worked? For you, Todd. He still do that? Okay, years ago, uh, Todd Duncan uh, came up to my house and he dropped off a package and I opened it up, was shocked, wasn't expecting anything, opened it up and there was a humongous framing nailer. And this is a big old nail gun, probably cost six, seven hundred dollars. And I opened it up and I called my buddy and I said, Look, did you order a framing nailer? No, I didn't. Well, we got one. And so we went back and forth about it for just a few hours, and then there was a, and there he was. And he said, did y'all get a package? Yeah, we got a package. It ain't ours, but we got it. And he was happy to receive it back. So we received a package, received it back. So we snatched it, okay? We lumbanoed it. When we handed it back to Todd, he decomited. I mean, I don't know if he'd driven all the way back to the hub or what he had done. He was from around Mumford anyway. He came back to the house and he got it and he was excited to get it, elated. And he thanked us over and over again. You know, I'm glad that, you know, you didn't hide that. You didn't lie about it, which I don't think he expected us to, but I'm glad you give it back. And that's just a little bit of the divide. And so the word that is chosen here, God writes uh, through the pen of Paul, through inspiration, he says, when I send Epaphroditus back, I want you to be happy that he's back. 
And I want you to wrap your arms around him and give him a big hug. And I want you to bring him into you and receive him into you again just like he had never left. Maybe even better than that. And he describes to them in the phrase here exactly how that takes place. He, he said, receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness. That's a pretty long phrase in the English, but really there's basically about two Greek words that back all that up. That just basically says, when you receive, I want you to hold him. I want you to be thankful for him. I want you to be appreciative for him, and I want you to let him know that. And so Epaphroditus is fixing to go home to what I assume, if they receive the instruction of Paul, to a tremendous welcome. And that's another way of translating that same word. When you see the same word that we're describing, decamai, received, when you see it in the book of James, over in James chapter 1 and verse 21, it talks about receiving with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. And the idea is there when we receive the word of God, we ought to do that in such a way as that the, you know, the more we study, the more we read, we just keep holding to it tighter and tighter and tighter. And we keep coming to the same conclusion, <clears throat> and that is that the Word of God is welcome in my life. Not always welcome. Some people's lives, uh, they see the Word of God, they reject it. They turn aside from it, but he says, receive him. And then he adds to this phrase, verse 29, Therefore receive, uh, receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such in reputation. Now, put him in high regard. Paul says he is to be noted for the work that he's done and how hard he has worked. And then he tells exactly what that was, verse 30, because, why receive him such high regard, Paul? Because for the work of Christ he was nigh unto death, not regarding his life. So what did he do? He laid his life on the line for the apostle Paul not regarding his life, to supply your lack of service toward me. So I don't know if you've ever had this happen. Uh, most of the time I think these go positively, especially when we're sending someone that we really know. But if you were to send someone and say, look, uh, on your way home from work tomorrow, stop by and check on sister so-and-so or brother so-and-so, or sometimes we'll do it for family members. You know, stop by and check on mama on the way home from work. Well, that person breezes by mama's house and it slides in the driveway, gravel kind of squeals, you know, pushes aside a little bit, runs up, knocks on the door. How you doing? Doing good. Okay, good. Jim told me to check on you. See you later. You know, that's one way of doing things. That's one way of describing, you know, go check on them. Or in this case is, is listed here, regarding service. Another way would be go by and check on mama tomorrow. Go by and check on mama, knock on the door. Mom opens the door, goes in, sits down, has a conversation, sees the grass needs cutting, goes out and does, you know, you can name a list of things and then you call them or talk to them the next day. Did you check on mama? Sure did. Cut the grass, you know, wash the car, and you, well, I, okay. You did things the way I would have done it. That's what Paul's saying. Paul said, bring him in high regard. Lift him up in his reputation and recognition why? Because he treats you just like I would. So as we would say it in this mindset, this man near about worked himself to death. And for who? Say, so, well, for Paul or on their behalf. 
ultimately for God. And so what, and you have to question yourself on this, what would I do for God? You know, we look at these individuals, the, uh, and we look at these, especially these people in the New Testament like Paul, and we say, boy, Paul was an amazing individual. Yes, he was. Probably the greatest, and I'm just putting this in some kind of quotes, probably the greatest Christian missionary evangelist who ever lived outside of Jesus. Yeah, probably so, maybe so. All the work that he did, all the labor that he did. Well, Paul says, you know what? I'm not that rare. But someone would do that for the cause of Christ. So that's chapter 2, basically. And chapter, the division between chapter 2 and 3 is actually the most bold and clear division you find in the book. Remember, chapter 1 blurred out a little bit. Chapter 1 went down through verse 26, and then verse 27 went over into chapter 2, verse 11. And so I may have told you, in my copy at least, and nothing really bad to do, I'm not, it wasn't in the original anyway, but in my copy, I've actually uh, crossed out the words chapter and the number 2 right here. Didn't do that on chapter 3. Chapter 2, uh, chapter 3 is an excellent division, and we can tell that because of the language, because of the subject matter and such as that, but he starts out with one word. What's it look like? King James speaks, says, finally. Now, if a preacher says, finally, what does that mean? You've heard the joke. Don't mean nothing. <laughs> Don't mean anything. <laughs> In most cases, it doesn't. At least it doesn't for me. Well, that's similar to the Apostle Paul. That's kind of the way we laugh at that. But Paul uses the word finally here not to mean in conclusion. Uh, Paul uses the word finally here to say, look, let's wrap up what we've said. Doesn't imply he's not going to say anything else. He's just saying, let's, let's, let's wrap up what's been said. Let's pull all this back together. So it's like, uh, it's like a wherefore, I don't know how to describe this, it's probably not the best way, but it's like a wherefore on steroids. And so it doesn't just point back. Most of these wherefores and therefores that we've seen already in the text has been like, you know, look at the last paragraph. Look at the last few, we would say, lines or verses or sentences. Paul comes right here and says, okay, think about everything we've said and let me show you where we've got to get. And so he lines up with this to let them know. And remember, to this point, Paul has really... This has been one of the most compassionate, one of the most personal, outside of the book of Philemon at least, one of the most personal letters he would write, one of the most positive letters that he would write. It's all about joy and all about rejoicing and all about celebration and such. Now finally, Paul gets down and he opens up right here and he says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Well, that's what he's been saying. To write the same things to me is indeed not grievous, but for you is safe. And we're going to go back and pick up some words in just a moment. Verse 2, he says, beware of dogs. That's a shift. That's a major shift from what he's mentioned so far. He said, beware, verse 2, beware of dogs. Then he adds, beware of evil workers. And then he adds, Beware of the concision. 
So Paul is really shifting gears here. He's making a major change because he's really, in all this, believe it or not, he's really gotten down to that point. He's gotten down to the place where he's already established everything that I suppose, through inspiration, at least I know he has, that he desired to establish with them. He set everything up, and now he's about to unload, not on them personally, but as a reminder to bring their memory into a place where they could say, okay, look, all of life and even all of the church is not just a bed of roses. And it's not just a matter of people, which he's had to, you know, he's already emphasized the need for unity and the expression of unity and the example of unity. And all of such in chapter 2 and how that Christ brought, and I keep using similar phrases, I swap it up a little bit each week, but Christ brought them to the point of unity by showing his humanity and humility in spite of his deity. He brought them to that. And then he gets down here at the last, and he says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord, for I write to you the same things. And so what Paul is saying here is, look, I've been basically saying to you the same thing in a lot of different ways. We've been taking a coin and turning it over on one side and back on the other over and over again. And now we're fixing to go to a different topic. We're fixing to separate from that. And we're fixing to start dealing with something new. But he says to them that making these points over and over, he said, has not been grievous to him, but it is for, for you it is safe. Now, a couple of words here. And various translations show up differently. Uh, the idea, at least behind the word grievous and the word safe, the ideas, I should say, the idea of being grievous to him is meaning I'm not just being lazy. Um, I've, I've probably told this little story before. Uh, years ago, we were in the Memphis School of Preaching. One of the preaching students had been over and, and preached at a congregation where one of our instructors, Brother Keith Mosier, uh, and his, well, his wife, Keith was out of town, but where his wife was worshiping the night before. So this is on Monday, this was on Sunday night before. One of the students had been over there and preached. And Brother Mosier came in the next morning, he said, uh, called his name, and he said, uh, Brother, I want to let you know that my wife, Dorothy, said you did an outstanding job last night. And of course, this boy blowed up. He looked like a robin on a spring morning, you know. He, and he said, the first time you preached it. And what he was pointing out is you just rambled. You did great for a few minutes and then you just come back and come back and come back. And What he ended up telling the boy basically is you need to stop being lazy and sit down and develop a sermon. And if you don't have any more to say than that, then sit down when you're done. Well, that's just a side note. What Paul is saying is, look, I'm not being lazy. And me repeating these things has been for your good. What is one of the best tools we can use to learn anything? Repetition. I've heard that same before in school as well. There are three keys to memorization. Repetition, repetition, repetition. And that's kind of the way it is. And if you'll think about it, the whole old law was nothing but repetition that brought them to the point. Every sacrifice, everything they dealt with, every feast that they you know, celebrating such really was just the idea of repetition on top of repetition to bring to the point where it become natural to serve God, natural to sacrifice to God, and so many other things. So he says, it's not grievous, 
but it's safe, meaning it makes you sure of things. And then verse 2, we've read across already, he said, Beware of dogs. Now, these are not poodles with painted toenails. These dogs that he's speaking of right here are dogs that are vicious. Now, if you back up, and I, I get that, you know, we understand dogs in a certain way, for the most part. Our animals are what we call domesticated. Not in the day Paul's writing. He wasn't the family pet. Now, they may have had some cows in the back, back uh, room and such as that, but not the dogs. The dogs were considered vicious. The dogs were considered nasty. And the dogs, you know, really wreak havoc around their neighborhood. Would seem more like what we would call today a coyote. Just as far as the way they would view them. Trouble. And the men he speaks of right here that he calls dogs. Uh, Paul is seemingly somewhat put out with. He's dealt with them. He's seen them before. He knows how they act and react. So he says, beware of dogs. I don't think he's speaking of three groups here. He's really speaking of one. He says, beware of dogs. Beware of evil doers. And beware of the concision. Anyone have a different word in their translation from concision? Mutilation is a literal term there. Beware of the circumcision is another way that that could be said. I don't know exactly why. Of course, God chooses the word. Paul only writes it. But I don't know exactly why the word, particular word, and it's very peculiar, was chosen here. But it seems to point towards circumcision. It points to literally toward mutilation. But it seems to somehow fire in between the two to carry with the idea of someone who is... Deri I can't say that word now. De I'll, I'll change it. Divisive. Derision is what I'm trying to say. Meaning these people, because of their requirement of circumcision, which was circumcision required under the old law? Yes. yes, it was. By the time of writing, is it still required to be a follower of God's? No. no. But some were. And some were requiring it to the nth degree, as in they were saying, okay, you've got to be circumcised. Well, I've already, and we're just using terms that we understand. I've already, we could argue, I've already heard, believe, repent, and confess, and be baptized. Well, that's all good, but you've got to be circumcised. And there were other things that they would oftentimes hold to, different feasts, different celebrations, the eating of meats or not and such, and we see those other arguments in other books. The Roman letter and the Galatian letter bring most of this out much more deeply than this does. This is a passing mention here in compared to what Romans says. Romans chapter 8 and also Romans chapter 2 as well. It carries back to Acts 15 where they had the Jerusalem Council or Jerusalem Conference where there would be a full discussion on the matter. And, uh, and so Paul had dealt with and was dealing with, and of course by this time it's already past that, and I mean by that the Jerusalem Council. Uh, but Paul has dealt with this and is dealing with this from time to time. It's something that keeps coming up. And he says, watch out for these people. Now, literally here the word concision is the idea of the false circumcision. These are fake. These are pseudo. These are people who are requiring circumcision where circumcision is not required. Let's look at a couple of passages. I don't usually flip or flop. Let's look at a couple of passages I think this one is a divine commentary on the mindset 
Maybe not the, the, the mention that he makes here, but the mindset of Paul. Let's go back to the book of Galatians. Uh, Galatians for just a moment. When you get there, go to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, look at verse 12. Well, let's back up just a little bit. Let's back up to about verse 11. He's made, made a whole argument against these people already. In verse 11, he's, uh, verse 9, verse 9, he says, A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. For I have confidence in you through the Lord that you will be none otherwise minded. He that troubleth you shall bear his judgment, whosoever he be. And I, brethren, if yet I preach circumcision, why do you suffer persecution? Then is the offense of the cross ceased. I would that they even, watch this now, I would that they even cut off which trouble you. What does he mean, I would that they would be cut off or that they cut off? Two ideas. Cast off. He says, basically, I wish they'd just leave you alone. And in some senses, they have been preaching circumcision, circumcision, circumcision. They're doing it over here in our text. They're demanding circumcision in, in addition to, or maybe in some cases, above everything else. And Paul uses a peculiar, very peculiar term here that's listed, King James speak, as even to be cut off. He basically says, I wish instead of just saying, you know, you need to be circumcised as in cut off, that they would be castrated. And that's the same word he uses over here, mutilation. It's why that translation comes up. Basically, Paul says, if they think that circumcision will save you, why don't they just take, take care of it all? Why don't they just go out and do what they claim and get it over with? And of course he goes on and says, For brethren, it's called in you liberty, verse 13 of, our, of the Galatian 5 reading, it's called in you liberty, only to use liberty for an occasion of the flesh, but by one to serve another. Yea, and, and the law is fulfilled in one word, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. That's the key to what their issue really was. If they would treat their neighbor as themselves they would not be requiring something of others that they had not yet required of themselves and especially something that is false so back in our text he said beware of dolls beware of evildoers beware of the concision he explains that and says for we are the circumcision which worship god in spirit and rejoice in christ jesus and have no confidence in the flesh so if you want to start dividing this text up, basically here we're starting with this section, verses 1 through 4, Paul gives his caution. And so Paul is cautioning them, beware of these people, these dogs, these evildoers, and those of the concision. Same group, same idea. His caution. The next section, verses 5 through 7, Paul's going to give his claim. Because he starts saying, you know what, these people think they're all this and they're almighty because they've added circumcision to themselves or maybe they claim some, some lineage as Jews. His claim is, I got it more than them. I've got everything they ever dreamt of having and more if all that mattered was reaching back under the old law and claiming some lineage. And then in the next section here, verses 8 and 9, 
we see Paul's consideration. And we'll go forward from that in just a moment. But he says, For we, verse 3, are the circumcision, which worship the Spirit of Christ and have no confidence in the flesh. So everything you're about to see, and it really starts there in verse 3, everything that we're about to see Paul say, I couldn't prove this, but it seems as if, just my judgment, it seems as if Paul takes everything they claim, everything they boast and brag about, every ounce of pride they have, and he goes one for one back and forth with them to say, okay, you think you need circumcision? I'll show you circumcision. Because the circumcision you're holding to, which was physical and fleshly, we hold to a spiritual circumcision. And we do not boast in the flesh. We do not put our, our stock in the flesh. And then he starts really serious with it. He says, we have no confidence in the flesh. It's not a matter of ritual. Though, I might have confidence, verse 4. I might have confidence in the flesh. If any other man thinketh that he hath whereof, that, I might, that he might trust in the flesh, I more. So their challenge is he's meeting with a competitive challenge and he's going to come back and forth to say the same. What is his evidence? I call this Paul coming, getting one up on them every time. Verse 5. Circumcise the eighth day. Could any of those men who were saying that probably claim the same? Yeah, they could. Right now, they're probably what you might call neck and neck. Paul says, I was circumcised the eighth day. However... Under the Old Testament law, when was God instructing men to be circumcised? On the eighth day. There was a group, however, and there still is. Believe it or not, there are still people who are circumcised as a religious practice and are still doing it, one group on the eighth day, and one group are doing it later on. They're doing it when they turn 13. That's 13 years, not days. Because they say that Ishmael was not circumcised until he was 13. So they're trying to mirror that today. Still today. Keeping up that supposed religious practice. And so Paul is saying to this group here, which has already become somewhat of a divide, as he's about to mention his lineage. He's saying, look, I was not only circumcised, I was circumcised at the proper time. When was Timothy circumcised? We'll have a day or a year count, but it wasn't at the same time Paul was. So Paul's first argument is, I did it, and I did it right. Now, when you're thinking about a, a pharisaical type, which he's going to hit on in a moment, and probably a, 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 a larger majority of these people who are these evildoers and these dogs he's referring to may be of the Pharisaic sect. First standard, he says, I was circumcised, I was circumcised right. And they might make that claim as well. So we'll go ahead and pause right here for this evening. I appreciate your time and your attention. And we'll try to pick up next week in verse 5.